Warning, if somebody cannot paraphrase an idea for you, they might not understand it. The Wrong Bunch is filmed in front of a live studio audience. Hey, Sean, you're home from work. Hey, Aaron, how's it going? Do you like my skateboard? Whoops. Hey, uh, you broke the lamp. And is that my suit you're wearing, Sean? You're such a prankster. What? I wanted to look like a professional businessman for my mud wrestling match. And I thought since you're the serious one, you'd have a nicer suit than me. Ugh, Sean. What can I say? I love to push people's buttons. Now, come on here. I have a serious question. Did you do like I asked you and read theory? Oh, geez. I know you said that I really need to read theory to be very serious. (laughs) Let's just say I did read theory. Oh. Oh, thank God. You read theory. Theory without adjectives. (sighs) What did you read? Bakunin, Kropotkin, Marx, Lenin? I read Ayn Rand's The Virtue of Selfishness. Oh, Sean. You angry that I followed your directions? That's not what I meant. I meant read good theory. I want you to read the theory that I like. And Oh, no. Oh, looks like the serious one got pranked by the goofy one. Not again. Honk, honk. To be honest, I barely got through it. <laughs> Reading that much dense text is really time-consuming. Yeah, that's why you don't go with Ayn Rand. It's, uh I think I might be more of, like, an audiobook person. Well, it's great that you said that. We got a new tape from Headquarters, actually about this very topic, about reading theory. (sighs) Oh, Headquarters, such a reliable character in our little world. Yeah, I don't know where we'd be without them. Put in the tape. Pop it in. Ready to learn? You can make me listen, but you can't make me understand. (laughs) Just kidding. Uh, Play. If you're on Twitter or Facebook or anywhere where there's leftist communities, you might be running into people who are telling one another to read theory, either in earnest or as an insult. It's something I've seen an increasing amount over the last couple of years is this sort of discourse, this argument over whether or not people should be spending their time to read political theory and the merits of political theory, the limitations of it. Yeah, there's like a real argument to be had about the limits of political theory and how useful it is to read political theory, like opposed to other ways of expressing political ideas and the costs and benefits there. There's all that stuff. And sometimes that feels like an intellectualization on top of the social phenomenon of read theory, which is often like you don't seem aware of the way I think about things. So you need to read theory with a capital T, which means my favorite theorist. The word theory, when used in a political context like that, I've got an allergy to it in a sense, because I feel like the first place that I encountered it was people who were using it, I thought, to evade the responsibility to describe their own ideas, where they're linking to these 1990s-style HTML black-and-white web pages. (laughs) on all these great resources that have Marxist and anarchist literature that I love. But looking to these old ass, it's like 1886, the blank of blank. And it's like, read this. And it's like, I just asked you why you thought this one specific thing. Like, where in this piece of writing am I going to find what distinguishes what I think and what you think? Yeah. And often it wouldn't even help to read it because you don't know what it means to them and how they're applying it to the current situation. Like, this is actually one I saw recently. Someone was talking about COVID stuff and like organizing rent strikes. Like, what should we do now? Basically, was the tenor of this conversation. I don't remember the details, but someone said something and then someone else said, you need to read What is to be Done by Lenin. (laughs) So they didn't say read theory. They gave a specific example, but you can read that. And I don't think it would give you a specific instruction on what to do now. Like it wouldn't, (laughs) 
there's an idea in that text that that person thought is relevant to the conversation. But even if that's true, you have to do the explaining of why that idea in the text is relevant to the conversation and what the idea is. If you're not doing that, then yeah, it's just a way to get people off your back. That's the way I see it a lot of the time is like, just go away, read this, like do something I know you're not going to do. And I think at the most toxic, at the highest level of taking this pattern to the most extreme you get this type of personality cult laundering where charismatic people in groups use the text of dead thinkers as a mirror of the leader of the sect as a way to punish the members and focus the members on this great leader beyond time who isn't there that can't speak for themselves. That's what Stalin did with Lenin. That's why Stalin's ideology was called Marxism-Leninism, was because he wanted to launder Lenin's cult of personality for himself. He wanted to have all the authority of Lenin that came with the respect that Lenin had. So you're saying that if I want to start my own political cult, like cynically, I want it to be a cult, I want them to venerate me, I can pick a theorist, go through, pick like some sentences and paragraphs and things and stitch together this self-serving little ideology, get everyone who's following me to read read those specific quotes. And then if anyone doesn't agree with what we're saying, we can sarcastically say, oh, you should read theory. So yeah, we use these quotes to find justifications for what they already want to do. Look at the text as a mirror, a chance to identify themselves in it and find themselves in it and use where they find themselves in the text to their advantage. And then anyone who challenges what they're saying, they can sort of brush their hand away and be like, oh, just go read the whole thing. But then if you actually take the time to figure out what they're saying, you can find out that the cult leader actually was misleading you. And it was always about what they already thought. I don't think that's a non-existent phenomenon, what we just described. I think it's actually very yeah. common. So we're talking about cults in a sort of abstract sense. So we thought that what we do is try to connect that more to something really real and visceral. And we reached out to a friend of ours, uh, Nicole's in episode 140, who was actually a former member of a real-life leftist cult. Hey, uh, hey, Nicole, how's it going? Good, how are you? Good. Me and Aaron are just recording an episode right now. The subject of left-wing cults came up, and I remember that you had been in a left-wing cult. <laughs> well, yes, I have been in a left-wing cult. <laughs> First of all, something that I like to preface is that obviously... People don't knowingly join cults. People find themselves in situations where they come out the other end of something and realize that it was a cult. So at the time when I was in the group, and like I think that there are still people who are in that group, people think of it as more of kind of like a revolutionary cell or like a left-wing cadre. After talking with Nicole for a while, I asked her about the demand that one reads theory and whether or not she encountered that in the cult that she left. I think anyone with any familiarity with the way that cults work knows that there's often different levels that you can like reach and you can only get to the next level by like showing your devotion. And in leftist cults, that can kind of manifest in a way that's congruent with studying and reading certain types of theory. The way that the group was situated, people who were higher up in terms of like respect or authority within the group were often people who were older or like had been involved in activism longer. At the top of the pyramid was the cult leader who was 30 years older than the next youngest person and had read extensively on a lot of different theorists and philosophers. Like I joined the group when I was 18. Coming into the group, it was hard not to see like a pyramid or like hierarchy of knowledge where people who were closer to making big decisions or like having a lot of sway or influence in the group, like they just always seemed to be people who had read more theory. But then I do remember, like, I was in the group for four years. A couple of years in, we recruited this incredibly intelligent 15-year-old kid who had, like, read all of this theory. And that frame just sort of, like, fell out the window because he actually was, like, so much more knowledgeable than people who were 15 years older than him. I mean, at least in terms of the ability to regurgitate certain things from certain books, like, it was actually quite impressive. Actually, then it became, you can read theory, but you don't understand it. I feel like it was maybe around that time that the discourse kind of, like, changed within the group that like you could read something multiple times and still not really understand what you were reading. That almost reminds me of like some Catholic church bullshit where it's like you can't understand the word of God unless you have the cipher of like a priest. So, okay, my cartoonish understanding of what happened here, and maybe you can correct me on the details, is reading theory was good. 
a child showed up who had a level of encyclopedic <laughs> knowledge on theory that disrupted the power structure of the interpreters of the text. And so they therefore pivoted to framing from reading theory to understanding and interpreting theory. Just add another layer of gatekeeping and keep this 15-year-old out of the halls of power. I've never thought of it in terms of that being the passing of events, but that's absolutely what happened. There was another kid who joined the group. He was 18, but he was like extremely well read. I remember he ended up getting like attacked by the leader for not standing and applauding when Evo Morales became president and we announced it at an event and he like didn't applaud. I just like, <laughs> I can't believe like some of the things that happened in that group where basically a 60 year old man was like bullying teenagers yelling at teenagers. And like, again, to take it back around to theory, it was another example of how somebody could have read a lot of theory. And if they came to conclusions different than the person who told them to read the theory, they had either done it wrong or read the wrong thing. So essentially, like this kid who joined the cult came from like, <laughs> a slightly different Trotskyist tendency. <laughs> That's basically what this comes down to. It was like a Trotsky's tendency that was more critical of Evo Morales as a union leader that had like sold out workers in the past. And so his election, although it might be like useful in some ways in Bolivia, not necessarily a working class victory. It's like critical support, maybe critical support of Evo Morales. I'm not going to say it's a bad thing, but I don't need to stand up and cheer at the election of this man from a country that I've never been to. This is <laughs> this is an organization where someone was berated for not standing and applauding. That turned into maybe like a five-hour meeting, Sean. <laughs> it was like a really, really serious ideological dispute. There was a struggle session over whether or not people should have the free choice to stand and applaud. Struggle session. Yeah, for real. And you know what? Bless this kid. He just didn't back down. Like, I think about how scary that must have been. It's like somebody's yelling at you for over an hour about how you didn't physically do this tiny little thing that they wanted you to do. And he's just like, no, he ended up leaving the group over it. <laughs> it's like so principled. I can't believe that shit. Okay. Well, yeah. Oh, thanks a lot for coming on the show today. We'll have you back for future insights. <laughs> I look forward to it. <laughs> I was blown away by talking to Nicole about her experience in this cult. I can't help feel like there's more story to be told here about what it's like to be in a leftist cult. And that it could be really helpful for people to have those guideposts of what sort of like cult-like behavior looks like. Yeah, like it sounds like a cartoon situation, like to be mad at someone for not standing and clapping. I'm eager for more stories like that if they're out there. So on that subject, we wanted to ask you, hey, did you also leave a leftist cult? Is it something that you're interested in potentially talking about or sharing stories with us? You can use the contact form on our website website or send us a message at contact at srslywrong.com. We want to talk to more people and ask some questions to learn more about how these cults operate within spaces that are actually at least supposed to be designed for the purposes of universal human emancipation and the liberation of everyone to create a much better society. So that intersection of creating a much better society and actually being a literal fucking cult is very interesting to us. And we're interested to talk to you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you in advance to everyone who does. And thank you to Nicole for speaking frankly about yeah. her experiences when she was younger. I think it's really valuable to the community to talk about and acknowledge these things. And Nicole, of course, is from Ad Astra Comics. So if you like left-wing comics, go to Ad Astra's website. Check out all the awesome comics they have. They just did one recently with the Institute for Social Ecology. I saw them posting some pages of that on Twitter and they just put out something about the COVID-19 crisis as well. It's on their website. Lots of great stuff. Follow them on Twitter, Instagram, all that stuff. And on with the show. We now go to two old friends meeting at the third annual Interdisciplinary Science International. Jason, is that you? Oh, Geet, Geet, pleasure to see you. How have you been? This place, I'm just noticing a lot of people here kind of don't know what they're talking about. Do you ever notice that? Well, I always try to remember, you know, everyone knows something I don't. <laughs> mm, I guess. I just get the sense they haven't read any theory. If you're a scientist, you should read theory. 
Oh well, I'm. I think everyone here's probably. You've read, read theory, right? Some sort of theory or another. Yes, I'm. I'm very well versed in plate tectonics, and I've got a cursory Wait. understanding of many theories. <laughs> okay. No, but I just was asked whether you've read theory, like, and you kind of understand how science works and stuff. Do I have to spell it out for you? Uh, okay, maybe I do. Yeah. D a r w i n theory. Oh, Darwin. Darwin's theory of evolution. You're asking mm-hmm. if I've read. Yeah, we can spell. Yeah, I mean. I haven't actually read Darwin firsthand, but I think generally, I think we can all agree that evolution is a force in nature. But a lot of these people that you're saying haven't read theories have actually read many, many theories and participate in the act of theory making all the time. Oh, I've read string theory. I've read general relativity theory. Some people even trying to sell me on like sociological theories. I mean, I know you're busy studying rocks that move or whatever, <laughs> tectonics, but maybe you start with the foundation of theory. I don't know. Sorry, I just thought I'd met someone who I could commiserate with. I think we both agree that sociologists are worthy of contempt, but when you say theory, how many theories have you really read? Is the point to read as many theories as possible and have read it all? Or is like, do people have different sort of specializations and then intermingle them through conversations and interdisciplinary sort of stuff? Isn't that more the point? Sorry, I didn't quite hear everything you said. I was rummaging through my bag. I'm trying to be less condescending to you because I consider you a friend so I was just getting a copy of On the Origin of Species by Charles Darwin and I I thought I'd give it to you rather than just ragging on you for not having read theory. I appreciate it as a gift, I guess. I'm not sure I'll necessarily get around to it right away. I mean, what would be the key takeaway that you think I need to get from this that I haven't already got? I could try to paraphrase it, but my fear is that it would be just as long as the book but not as good. It affects everything. Like this interaction, I feel like I'm on a higher level in this interaction. I understand more about it because I understand theory. There's so many things and they all interlock and that's why it's a book. So read it. Okay, I'll try to read it sometime. But can I just say as a layman, I'm worried about the fact that some people interpret this origin of species thing to mean that, you know, we need to consciously co-evolve as a species using sort of like mutual aid. But then other people read this and sort of take away the message, you know, of so-called social Darwinism, which is a repressive tendency within this. That's just my layman's opinion. Those are deviations. Yeah, I guess like how do we take the ethics out of the directionality? You know what I mean? I could explain the answer to you if you'd read the book already, but once you've read the book, I won't need to explain it to you. So maybe just read the book. So on the side of the intellectual debate of whether reading political theory, because that's what we're usually talking about, you don't usually hear scientists saying, read theory. And theory is just (laughs) such a broad word, it could refer to any number of conceptual systems that are designed and expressed through words. Yeah, it's like an interlocking philosophical base of premises and assumptions and direction and idea. Like, that's a theory. And then you can use that to think about things in the world. But the theory itself is abstract. It has to be. Otherwise, it wouldn't be theory. It would be, like, concrete reality. Well, yeah, and this is one of the things that I think confuses me a little bit about how we talk about political theory as well. Because I feel like there are theoretical elements to history and art, and there could be historical or art elements to theory. And the the way that these things sort of blur together, I guess, is interesting to me. Because I I do feel like you can get sort of a richer experience from other mediums than text about theoretical concepts, like for the average listener or viewer, reader. I tend to think that reading specifically is probably not the best way to express theory, even though I'm a large fan of reading myself, and I think that expanding literacy is a good goal. Yeah, like if you want to use that theory in the real world, either in practice, like applying it in practice, that's one way to use theory is to say our theory informs our actions in the world. But there's also just the raw sharing of ideas. Like that's kind of what's behind you should read theory is like, I want you to if not think like me, then understand how I'm thinking about this thing. Like that's what I think is the steel man version of what people are wanting. They want the other person to understand them. And if you want other people to understand your theory or where you're coming from, then telling people to read theory is not necessarily going to do that. Like some people really like that, reading these abstract philosophical systems and like linking chains of conceptual ideas to one another and like building this edifice. And I like that sometimes. I like reading all those. But after you read a few of them, like how much political theory can you actually read? 
So socially, if you want people to understand what you're saying, you have to get better at explaining the theory in the moment, how it applies to what you're actually talking about. Yeah, I think to cartoonishly reduce it here, the strategy of saying, okay, we're going to make freely available old texts from the 1800s and 1900s, and we're going to mix that with a strategy of socially telling people to read it. And like that's how we're going to achieve <laughs> ideological and social transformation. I think there's a real shortcoming in that unconscious premise there. I think more important than people who are currently low on the political engagement spectrum, more important than them reading theory is people who are highly politically engaged, like us who are here right now listening to this and, and recording this at the different points of time. It's more important that we do the work of translating the ideas of theory that matter into a language that people can grasp and understand. <laughs> you could call it English to English translation. Translating the ideas through paraphrase into more accessible forms, bringing into more accessible mediums, that's a good thing. So I think my issue with read theory isn't the theory part. It's the premise that reading is mandatory. And in particular, reading these extremely long and dense, unfriendly texts, which I just see creating a lot of feelings of inadequacy in other people, where people preface before they talk that they feel like they're not good enough, and it bothers me. We're participating in theory all the time. A lot of tweets are theory. Listening to podcasts and watching movies and all that stuff can be ways to get theory, like political theory. There's a lot of ways to transfer this information. And I think people who have trouble reading theory because of their attention or dyslexia or whatever other sort of reason, maybe you speak more than one language, English isn't your first language when you're trying to read the theory or something. Who knows? There's a bunch of different reasons why people could have trouble getting through theory. And I just think like it's not fair to put the assumption individually on individuals to go individually read pieces of writing. And by having that social premise out there, we're generating feelings of inadequacy, which don't help the cause of universal emancipation. And is also not appropriately respecting the diversity of humankind. Well, like the other thing with old texts is that the words that people use and the implications and the context changes over time. So in order to even understand what they're saying, you need to know when they were writing and what certain things meant then and all this. Just read theory also implies study the history of philosophy and the surrounding history of the thinker. That like it's not just reading a book or just reading an essay. It's a whole other undertaking is implied beneath that, that you can just take out by explaining things in the current world, in the current context, with the current ways we use words, and like trying to reach people where they're at on the level that we are now. And it's not like reading those old theory books and decoding them is bad. That's a good thing. Like I think someone should be doing that in the world, but it's not an expectation we can put on everyone. And as you're saying, like obviously just creates insecurities in people. But also the conveyance of abstract ideas directly which is what I mostly associate with theory, I don't think is always the best way to help people understand ideas in a broader sense. Or like you mentioned movies and fiction can also be used to deliver theory. And I think sometimes they can, like you can put theory in a character's voice or have like a really obvious lesson that has like a moral of the story that's using it to transmit theory. But the other strength of fiction is that you can build concrete examples that theory can be applied to. You can bump theory up against, you know, not the real world, but your fictional world. Because that's always the other thing with theory is like on the one side, you have these perfect abstract ideas that all link together and make sense. And when this thing happens, people should do this and it'll result in this action. But the real world is always way more complicated than that. So theory, when it bumps up against the real world, often reveals limitations of itself or things that it didn't account for. And you can explore that kind of stuff in fiction. And even in theory, if you want to explore that kind of stuff, you sometimes have to take little dives into fiction. People do thought experiments or like give examples from history, things like that. I think in all of my experiences, reading theory, reading like political theory that people would refer to as theory within leftist spaces, firsthand anarchists, Marxists, liberal philosophers from history, I think when reading by myself, seldom gotten insight, unfortunately. Like you mentioned before, there's the context missing sometimes. Things that are framed in terms of arguments that I don't have the context for, or they're making reference to contemporary events. Like these are the types of things that you can have pulled out by a study guide or like a reading group, or it's like why people watch David Harvey lectures instead of reading Capital themselves. 
because he's able to explain all the context and stuff like that. And that's like the purpose of a reading group. But when I look back on the times that I've actually read theory by myself, like older theory, it's been pretty slim pickings in terms of things that I got out of it other than using all of my willpower to overcome the desire to do something shiny and fast instead. The only exception I can give to that really are more recent pieces of theory, like political writing over the last 50 years, I find generally speaking more engaging than the political writing from before it. I wonder if people consider that theory because it seems like in a lot of senses they don't. In a lot of senses, theory is sort of a euphemism for something much more specific than that. When you say political writing, what kind of political writing? My understanding is that some current political writing would be theory and some wouldn't. Let's look at the example of like the People's Republic of Walmart. It's like a verso paperback. I found it to be an enjoyable book. It had a mixture between prescriptions for the future and historical anecdotes. I can't think of any reason it should be placed in a different category than like political theory proper. It's coming to conclusions, sharing opinions. It's talking about what politically should be done. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree that that's theory. I think I was mostly thinking of separating it from maybe journalism, but there can be blurrings between the two, obviously. I think there's also a bias towards older things, whereas something like the People's Republic of Walmart might be considered theory in 30 years. But right now, it's not necessarily theory. It's just some dudes wrote a book. Older writing is more magical. This wisdom being passed down, people in 2020, even though they have access to way more information, way more access to ideology than any time in history, they know the scope of politics. They know all the different nuances of different varieties of different historical tendencies and whatever. People have access to that on just another level right now. The amount of history that we have access compared to like all of human history history is stupendous, but yet we have this bias against the present. We have this bias against making political theory about the present. And accepting political theory about the present is something that's actionable on the terms of reading what Lenin said about peasant society in Russia. I mean, obviously, this is a niche beef that I'm picking here with this. It's a real tendency within left circles, but I mean, it's not the biggest problem in the world, but it does suck ass. And I think it gives young, newer leftists this weird idea about what leftism is supposed to be. And it helps create that pendulum swing when people leave the left and become either apolitical or have bad politics. Part of the pendulum swing is all these weird assumptions that we start packing on. It's like, hey, 17-year-old, here's all these weird assumptions about what you should be. And if you don't do it, you're not good enough. You're not radical enough. You're not cool enough. So it's no wonder that one in eight of them join a cult. Six of them become conservatives. And the other two, <laughs> the other two become like blue. These are real numbers from a study Sean and I did. We pulled a million leftists. Yeah, we found that two of them were actually, I don't know, start laughing. It was a really rigorous study. We now go to the old reading debt sketch. Uh, Doctor, doctor, I need your help. I am completely beside myself. Everywhere I go, I see books. I want to read. It's not even just that people are telling me to read them. It's that I want to read them. There's just so much. There's more than I could read in a lifetime. The debt keeps growing and it's going to crush me, all this reading debt. What do I do? Well, patient, as a doctor, I have to say, this issue, it's just out of my purview. I'm going to have to write you a referral here. One second. Get my notepad. This is the number for the best economist in town. He'll tell you how to balance your budget, make sure that you're the black over there. I don't really know my way around that, but this is a stomach upset pill. It will make your tummy feel better if that's a symptom. Do you want it? Wow, you're a great doctor. That is just the Band-Aid solution. It's not getting to the root of the problem. The root of the problem is at The Economist. Mr. Economist, Mr. Economist, I need your help. I have this ever-growing reading debt. There's so many books I want to read. The list is just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. What do I do? What did we tell you? Debt begets debt. And as an economist, I'm sorry, this is falling out of my purview. I'll write you a referral. This is the best librarian in town. Now, this is a reading debt. Now, librarians know best on this one. Do you intend to read Of Mice and Men? Yes. Yeah, that one's been on the list forever. Well, the one guy shoots the other guy at the end. There's one less book off your list. Now, of course, that's just a Band-Aid. It won't get to the root of the problem. If you go to uh, the, the librarian, they should be able to help you out. Librarian, librarian, please help me with all this reading debt. You know what it's like. There's so many books in the library. Have you read them all? Probably not, but I'm sure you want to. What do we do? Uh, Well, 
That is a tough question. I think it's something a lot of people struggle with, that longing, that grasping but never holding. And especially being here surrounded by so many beautiful, perfect books that I'd only love to read if time weren't a factor. It's maddening, but unfortunately as a librarian, I have to tell you, this is out of my purview. I'm going to have to write you a referral. This is the best spiritual advisor in the city. Oh. This is a spiritual question. You're going to have to come to peace with this. Do you have anything to temporarily make me feel better right now? The last two guys did. Well, we just put on a fresh pot of coffee over there. Might be a little pick-me-up. You know what? I'll take you up on that. Thank you. And the Wi-Fi password is reading is cool. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Spiritual leader, spiritual leader. I've talked to everybody that I can think of. I've gotten referral after referral after referral. I have this huge problem with all these books I haven't read, all this reading debt building up, and I don't know what to do. Can you help me? Well, my child, I am a erratic, lone wolf spiritualist, if you will, and I pull from all sorts of different traditions trying to piece together the transcendent true spirituality, which is a process of gnosis. And I will say this is my purview exactly. Oh, thank God. Or thank you. I don't know who to thank. You can tell me. On this particular issue, I would defer to the Prophet Muhammad. I think the Prophet Muhammad got this exactly correct. Oh, what did he say? I'm anxious to hear. What, you don't read religious theory? I, oh. Or, um, as I call it, ooh, theory? It's on my list. Right. Is there any way you could paraphrase the idea for me? <sighs> All right. I'll toil for you and explain my understanding. Oh, thank you. Because you didn't do the work of already reading the theory. The Prophet Muhammad said, if a man was killed in battle for the sake of Allah, then brought back to life, and he owed a debt, he would not enter paradise until his debt was paid off. And I think this 110% applies to unread books and book debt. You will not be allowed to enter heaven until you finish all those books you've been intending to read all this time. You know, that makes me feel more at peace with it, honestly. On the one hand, you know, making me do all this, you know, anti-authoritarian in me chafes against that a bit. But on the other hand, it just feels like I'll get to all of them now. And I know that spiritually. No wonder people love Islam so much. Personally, I think variety is the spice of life. My religion is to synthesize religions. There's things to like about it. There's things to say, hey, maybe this isn't the best part, as with any religion, you know? Great. But that one is spot on, especially when it comes to books. Yeah, it solved my spiritual problem, so Well, thanks. maybe the pantheistic, many-eyed snake fractal at the center of the universe smile upon you. That was the reading debt sketch. And now we go back to the show. Hello and welcome to Confirmation Bias News on today's special breaking news sad report. Beloved public intellectual and very serious Marxist Geet Finkus has fallen deep into a coma from which doctors say he may never recover. Geet, of course, is famous for the 2020 book, The Very Serious Road to Socialism, which was a bestseller and has influenced acolytes around the world to calling themselves Geetheads that believe it was the one necessary precondition of worldwide social and economic revolution is achieving what he called the threshold of general seriousness, from which naturally the gears of history would turn towards a utopian society called communism. Doctors say this coma may last the rest of his life. For confirmation bias news, my name is Geet Finkus. No relation, we're both named after a famous president in our society named Geet Finkus. So that's for the reason why we have the same name. That explains that. <sighs> Uh, uh, Geet, Geet, is that you? Where am I? A very serious Geet Pinkus himself. <coughs> yes. <coughs> Can you get a Geet? Oh, thank you, water. Thank you. Now, Mr. Finkus, you have been in a coma now for almost 40 years, and we've now developed the technology to be able to pull you out into the thriving world we have now, which... Oh, that's serious work. I'm thank you. I'm excited to tell you... <laughs> is full communism in the 40 years since uh, we you did, did it. <laughs> yeah. We, full we, communism. We are, oh, man. Oh, so man. That's good news to wake up to. Just big honor to wake you up. This is the most serious moment of my life. When did we do it? When did we achieve general seriousness, the threshold? Oh, yes, yes. I just remembered your book, The General Seriousness Threshold. Classic. Definitely well studied. But 
No, we never achieved anything remotely like a general seriousness threshold. That was not necessary, it turned out. So we managed to achieve a fully automated post-scarcity ecological and humane society. Wait, wait, are you saying that your society, more than 1% of the movies are comedy movies? Well, yes, of course. We have a variety of different films, whatever sort of films people want to watch. And yeah, we love to laugh. We love to have mirth <laughs> in, okay. under communism. So How is that even communism? I no, this is a nightmare. Well, I mean, with all due respect, Mr. Finkus, you haven't woken up in a nightmare. You've woken up in a utopia. You've woken up in your dreams come to life. It's just that you, you had some technical details. Uh, no, this is no utopia. I know what a utopia would... I should have seen it right away. There's color on the walls. You're wearing shorts. No, but Mr. Finkus, I think we just really need to clarify here that just because your theory had some things that turned out to not be true doesn't mean that you didn't win. We all won. We all won together. It wasn't a battle between the serious ones and the mirthful ones or something like that. It was like that we were trying out different things and it turned out we hit the right circumstance at the right time. A contingent series of events unfolded. And we were able to achieve a total world revolution towards a world with communist economics, but where you know, ecological technologies developed and people have the capacity to thrive. It's not a nightmare at all. I can't think of any reason why you should think of it as a nightmare because you want at this not like this not like this guy hate mr finkus hmm? i know you're very serious but come on can you crack a smile for your friendly coma waker come on crack a smile hey check this out have you ever seen someone do this blue little fart on my hands mr finkus come on smile it's a utopia. Mm, no, I don't want to. Oh, man. I don't want it. I don't want it. It's not serious. All right, well, this next part's going to be awkward because my plan was to first make you really happy and glad that you're here, but you're just sad. And my second thing I was going to do was mm -hmm. to hold you responsible for your crimes against humanity because your writing was used as a justification for a what? wave of terror attacks during the transitionary period and actually our scientists have found that the influence of your theory delayed our transition by at least seven to nine years which our estimates say could have saved between 10 and 20,000 lives and I don't mean to say this in a way like oh we're here to get justice for your crimes but you need to get justice for your crimes so we're not coming to punish you but you know unfortunately we are going to have to Send you to jail. Well, now that sounds pretty serious, now doesn't it? Maybe. Okay. Yeah. If there's a punitive justice aspect in this society, you know, maybe it's not so bad after all. That's right. We're going to send you straight to jail. So, yeah, you're happy. That's perfect. So, we'll be sending you to a party jail to rest and relax and have fun and make new friends. Uh, wait. Party jail? Now, that's... you don't party all the time, but you party most of the time. That's not a serious jail. Is, but... um, a lot of. Criminals actually quite like it. It's fun. No, no, we bring no, in comedians no, every no, week. No, no. There's a real riff culture there. It's hilarious if you're with them. I think you're going to love it. What did I do to deserve this? Oh, <laughs> And so the very serious political thinker Geet Finkus became the top leading advocate for legal euthanasia underneath the post-scarcity utopian society where he lived. Finkus's search for release from his mortal coil ended up helping hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people. And that's the story of how Geet Finkus became the poster boy of euthanasia. The end. But apart from the obvious frustration with some of the ways that the read theory meme propagates in society and affects people, I think, in ways that are contrary to the politics that we should build, we should also talk about how it's true that it's really good when there's good political theory and it's useful to read good political theory and get good ideas. There's political theory that I've read that I've absolutely loved, that I've gotten a lot of benefits from. And studying old political theory in groups has also given a lot of benefits to me. Here lectures where people repeat the key points of old political theory has given a lot of benefit to me. 
when we're talking about theory in terms of political, economic, and ethical systems, it's good to have a pretty decent chunk of society working on these questions actively and sharing information to make society better. So I think it is true that a lot of people should read more theory than they currently do if they have the chance. Yeah, because there's so much different theory out there. And like, you could read so much theory, like you could spend your life studying theory at university and not have read the theory that they want you to like, you should read theory. I think theory can be really beautiful, trying to philosophically think through different conceptual schemas and like moral premises and examples from history and all that and like coming to conclusions, general rules, things that seem true, practices that come from values, like logically analyzing that stuff and attempting to describe the answers that you come to through these like explorations of conceptual space is amazing. And I think like the benefit of having those books is that sometimes when people are reading it, they get like a flash of that idea that the author was having that excited them so much that they wanted to write this theory book and like describe it, get all the details. And if, if you can transmit that to someone, I think that's the point of theory. You know, it is beautiful to imagine a conversation across time, people trying to piece together the world in a new way that could better take care of humanity and have like egalitarian social relations. Like those people from history are able to like touch the present, I think is a beautiful thing. And I would certainly never call for the burning of books, <laughs> like not giving people that opportunity. I just think it's like a, I guess we've circled around this point, but it's like, it's a very specific skill. And it's the job of people with that specific skill to then describe it to other people. Like you understanding theory is great, sure. I bet it felt good when like the things logically clicked into place and like maybe you saw things from a new perspective. That's a beneficial experience, but not everybody is gonna get that from the text in the same way you did. And if you wanna transmit it to people, you have to do that. Like you can hope other people will get it from the text and some probably will, and you can just talk to each other. But if you want to talk to broader swaths of people, it's going to be insufficient because it's a specialized skill to like decode theory. There's this beautiful process if you think of it now. And remember, we're retaining everything the whole time. There's, you can always get out the original books from the library. But there's a, a process that happens where information ideally, and I think this is something that's actually sort of stifled by our society as it currently stands with wage relations and consumer society and all the sort of bullshit that we deal with in our day-to-day. -day. The reprocessing of old information, the reprocessing of having someone to look at, hey, we're in the 2020s now, motherfucker. This is what the 2020s are like. It's been a bang-up decade so far, and we're really just going to get right into it here. I understand the historical references of this. I've went through Kropotkin's Conquest of Bread. I've tweaked it, rewritten it, cut out huge sections that just didn't need to be there, <laughs> and added new insights and context related to the current situation. That reprocessing and that redevelopment, and it might not be a direct translation. It could be, say, like taking elements of that, taking elements of this, taking elements of this, and then applying new information to it. That's where new books come from in political theory. And I like supporting the people who are alive. I really like the idea of like finding people who are alive, writing good shit, buying their books. That process of cycling information up to the present is a social process that only a minority of people need to be involved in. You could have a society much healthier than ours, where a small minority of people do that, reprocess that information for larger groups of people, and have people in society understand these texts and these ideas even better than the people who study it directly now. That's within the realm of potentiality, and I think that is one of the things yeah. that you'll see under a thriving society. Yeah, it's a beautiful dream, and it goes to show just how fallen our world is, that as you were describing it, part of my brain went into like, you know, these small groups of people are going to decode the texts and then tell the masses what to think about it. So I just want to preempt any of that and say all the theory texts are available to the public. The process through which the theory was... <laughs> described in the modern like that's all open it's honest we're not talking about philosopher kings here no 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 this is collaborative open source everybody's invited but just recognizing that not everybody wants to from the conservative fear-mongering that a small group of people are going to be remastering the text for the new generation and controlling everyone's thoughts just pointing out that pretty much all the decisions in our lives are made by small groups of people mm. oh yeah that yeah. affect us yeah this is already happening <laughs> yeah
<laughs> Except worse, because not everyone gets to participate. Only small groups of people get to participate based on their wealth. So, I mean, you could have a small group of people making a decision that have a certain ethical principles and stuff underlying them, and that small group of people might make perfectly good decisions. But under this system that we have, the small groups of people are picked by design to be less likely to come to those sort of communal decisions. Hello and welcome to Our Strange Multiverse. I'm your host, The Real Geet Finkus. Us that study multiverses, we find that these many branching and intersecting and sometimes merging strands often have interesting overlaps and distinctions. When I founded the Geet Finkus Multiverse Foundation, one of the things I became fascinated with was neighbor dimensions. Now we find this in all sorts of places across the universe. Our staff got together and did some digging and they <laughs> they like to give old Geet Finkus a hard time, <laughs> but I'm a good sport. They found three universes right next to each other where multiverse versions of me are facing the courts. So this should be fun. Today's multiverses are multiverse 9414B, 4004L, and of course, 1493 Seven. These three universes might seem very different, but moments like this, you can see that us multiverses aren't so different after all. Let's roll the clips. I'd like to draw the attention of the underwater mermaid court to the defendant, Geet Finkus's actions in this case when it comes to theory. It's clear that he is guilty of deviating from the mermaid code, the one true theory with his, his own specific little writings, his own little tinkering private theories go against the one true theoretical order, the mermaid code. And he's absolutely guilty and should be sent away to mermaid jail. Throw away the key. Order in the court, order in the court. Mr. Finkus, I think we've heard enough. You are hereby found guilty of designing your own theory egomaniacally against the collective truth. Your irresponsible actions have put not only yourself and those close to you, but the entire society at danger. You are hereby ordered to destroy all copies of your so-called theory and are sentenced to 20 years hard labor in the underwater mermaid coral mines. I would like to draw the attention here in this underground cave court. This is an earth court. We're all gnomes. Geet Finkus is a gnome. I'm a gnome. Geet Finkus is most certainly guilty of breaking from the organic tradition of casting away all theory, never reading any theory at all, and just spontaneously thriving in the moment, like vibrant, living, thriving beings. No, no thinking ahead, no theory writing, no tinkering. He's violated this order. He's violated this natural way that us gnomes are. He's absolutely guilty. Order in the court. Mr. Finkus, the evidence is clear. You have been developing a theory. Your irresponsible actions put not only yourself and those close to you at risk, but this entire society. If that theory had gotten out, my, I won't talk about personal stuff from the bench. Mr. Finkus, you are hereby ordered to destroy all copies of this so-called theory and are sentenced to 20 years hard labor in the sulfur pits. I'd like to draw the attention of the volcano court, because we are all fire golems, volcano people here, to the actions of the defendant, Geet Finkus. We've got a sacred structure in our society that everyone is to make their own theory. Everyone is to design their own system of ideas to navigate the world. And we found that in the defendant, Geet Finkus's theory, he incited others to plagiarism by saying, quote, not every theory needs to be 100% original. Sometimes you can borrow good ideas from other people. This is an incitement to plagiarism, and the penalty, I think we all know, is quite severe. Order in the court, order in the court. I think we've heard enough here. Mr. Finkus, your reckless actions here today, I think, need no summarizing from me. Theory is as theory does, and theory must be unique, individual, vibrant, alive. I promised I wasn't getting but Okay. Get out of my court. Destroy it all. And 20, no, 30 years hard labor in the ice mountains where our people can barely survive. Better than you deserve. These three universes are distinct 
yet obviously similar. If you're a fan of a show, follow us on Patreon. Our strange multiverse, stranger still than it may seem. I'm your host, the real Geet Finkus, at the center of the multiverse, and good night. It can be easy to get caught up in some of the weird online dynamics and maybe miss out on the reasons why some people choose to read lots of theory. Do you want to maybe like call someone who reads lots of theory, see what they think? Who do we know that loves theory, just loves it? Oh, I know. Our friend Pete in Wrongtown from episode 96, the Google Marie Bookchin episode, he reads tons of theory. And he also frequently tells me to read theory that I don't get around to reading. It's a classic episode. Pete, it's perfect. Let's give him a ring-a-ding on the old wrong phone, the big phone in the middle of our whimsical apartment that we share in this audio universe. Hello? Hey, how's it going? Doing all right. How you doing? We're calling up Pete, the character from Wrongtown, to get two cents on whether or not one should read theory. I can't believe you're asking me this question. Should people read theory without adjectives? Yeah, of course. Je- well, not without adjectives? Jesus. People should read specific theories. People should read good theories. There's not enough time to just read theory without adjectives forever and ever. But yeah, of course people should read theory. It informs the actions we take. It informs how we can evaluate what we think is good and what we think is strategic. And it's also generalizable. It's basically just a few steps beyond amateurs, but good theory is totally generalizable to almost everybody. Yeah, I guess that's a common criticism of theory is that it's not accessible to people, but I guess the potentiality exists of creating theory that is accessible. Yeah, I think there's these like two wrong common leftist tropes about theory one of which is anarchistic and one of which is Marxian. The Marxian one is kind of theory is for these elite intellectuals and it's beyond the masses and these few people need to guide everybody else. And I think that's just wrong. And the anarchistic one is also wrong because it kind of assumes that good theory is just part of amateur folk knowledge. And I think that that is also wrong to a good degree. Good theory isn't like innate to us, nor is it something that's impossible for us to arrive at, something that's only for the elites. It's for everybody, but it's not immediately obvious. So people need to do some struggle. It's going to be a few steps away from them, but it's possible for what appears to be really complex theory that seems like it's only for a few to be completely generalized. About like the sort of particular ways in which telling other people to read theory is abused. Well, I'm sure that happens all the time, online especially, but also in person. It can be a cop-out to actually not say, like, if you think X, Y, and Z is true, to not actually give your reasons for that, to just say, read theory. So it can actually take away from explaining theory to people. Also, the other concern I have is the sense of shame that people have over this imaginary idea of the theory that they should be reading. It's almost like this sort of internalized workerist productivity mindset of like, I must do the work of getting through all this theory. And by not doing it, I'm lazy and I will apologize and and so on. Yeah, that's an issue. I think people need to be self-motivated internally and it shouldn't be an extremely stressful experience. But I, I do think people should have that internal motivation to want to learn new things and correct things that were wrong or evil that they used to think. Another important reason we need theory is because good intentions aren't enough. I think most people have really good intentions most of the time, generally, but with wrong premises that could lead to supporting the worst ideas in the world. Along with your endorsement of reading theory, a suggestion for a specific piece of theory that people are unlikely to have heard of. Totally. I think people should check out a specifism. It's a specific kind of libertarian communist tendency that deals with dual organizationalism. The idea that you want to have a generalized kind of mass-based organization, but then also an ideologically specific anarchist communist organization that are supposed to then work in tandem together to build general movement and the anarchist specific movement should then wind up trying to prevent authoritarianism from taking hold of popular movements but be generally just instrumentalized towards the self-management of struggle and people can read 
a bunch of stuff on Black Rose Anarchist Federation's website about a specificism, or they can read Malatesta's work on dual organizationalism, or Machno's work on platformism. I think all of that stuff is some really good theory. Well, thanks for coming back on the show, Pete. It was great to hear from you. Yeah, don't forget to read theory, Sean. Uh, I'll try to make time. You know, I'm busy, but right, take care. <laughs> see you. So yeah, folks, this has been the Seriously Wrong Theory Cast, blasting theory straight into your eardrums week after week. Some old theory, some new theory, but theory, theory, theory. Well, yeah, we do both on the show. Like we have the theory segments. That's how we always refer to them offline. There's the theory segments and then the sketches or the fiction bits where we bump theory up against imagined worlds. So it's always a dialectic between the two, theory and non-theory. Though, like we obviously we don't read old texts on the show. We're paraphrasing theory. We're expressing it for a new time, new day. We're doing that thing that we're talking about. So yeah, go to the people in your life, and if they say something that is politically naive, say you need to listen to more theory, and then link them to our show. Scientists are now saying that it's possible in the future. We even foresee frontiers where people will be snarkily telling each other on Twitter that they need to game theory more often. That's right. There'll be famous video games made by revolutionary leaders. Oh, You'll have yeah. to play sort of like Lenin's Mario Kart to understand why authoritarianism isn't real. Oh, that's wild. I never thought about video game theory, but it seems like a wonderful medium potentially for it. You can do like text drops. You can do all kinds of stuff. You just got me thinking there. <laughs> You need to game more theory. The other thing you said was, if someone asks you a political question, link them to our podcast, which on the one hand, I 100% agree with. People should link everyone to our podcast all the time, whether they ask a political question or not. <laughs> but on the other hand, I don't want listen to this podcast to also become a social thing where you're just resisting having a conversation or explaining something to someone like, oh, if you just listen to this podcast, you would understand. They might not get the same thing out of the podcast as you. So you can link them. You should link them. You should always link them, our episodes. But also paraphrase the ideas for yourself. Maybe we can find a good middle ground here. By default, we should all be striving to paraphrase ideas. We need to grasp ideas from multiple angles with different language sets. It helps us to grasp the totality of the concepts underlying the words, and that's important. But if you become a Patreon to Seriously Wrong, it's only $6 a month for all the bonus episodes, and we'll let you link to us in lieu of making an argument. So if you're ever fighting with someone and you don't want to take the time to express in detail all the things, for example, prison abolition, why landlords aren't good, that sort of stuff. If you're a Patreon subscriber, we give you permission to cynically use us as a bludgeon to avoid discussing it, saying that they have to listen to us before you'll talk to them. But only if you donate to our yeah, Patreon. Yeah, it's a perk at the $2. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's a $6 perk. None of you $2. I don't want to see that from no... I'm a bit more generous. Sometimes I wanted to give it to the $2, but Sean's a hard ass. So, no, it's only for only the Sixers can do it. <laughs> um, and if you're interested in, in reading theory with me and a bunch of other people, we have a library socialist book club where we do weekly readings aloud of theory on Thursday, where we discuss it and try to decode it. And then the following Wednesday, we have two discussion groups, one at 7 a.m. GMT and one at 23 GMT on Wednesday. So there's two different times you can sort of like pick based on where you live in the world and whether you're a night owl or a day owl or whatever. And there's a group of people who are going to be talking about a book. We're reading through Post-Scarcity Anarchism by Murray Bookchin. It's a book that's written about 60 years ago or something like that. And it definitely still needs a bunch of decoding, but it's like a lot of fun and really great. So I encourage you to join that. Uh, that's on our Patreon as well at any level. And if money's a barrier to you and you want to be part of the book club, we aren't going to turn you away. Feel free to shoot us a message on any platform and we'll make sure that you're able to participate. Thank you so much for listening and have a great week. seriously wrong sean and aaron hire thousands i'll pop out the tape i never like to listen to those next time parts uh, from headquarters oh yeah i don't want to spoil the next tape wow sean not to be too serious but listening to that tape really kind of made me sad because you know i've been trying to get you to read theory 
and now I feel like oh, I'm an idiot trying to make people read theory. No, no, I must that's be a not... real schmuck and a loser, hey? No, hey, come on. Don't be so serious about yourself. You're not a schmuck and a loser. There's nothing more healthy than wanting to share something you care about with other people. It doesn't make you a bad person. It's just important to recognize that not everyone is going to do that and, and not everyone needs to. We can sort of have a complementary mixture of, you know, some people who are more or less interested in different things. And through the process of sharing the fruits of our study together, we can all achieve better levels together. It's not a where there's one good way to get to good politics. It's a combination. And you're not a bad person for wanting me to read theory. Maybe I'm a bad person for pranking you about it. I'm sorry. No, you're you're not bad either. Oh, come here. Give me a hug. <sighs> you know, you, you think that you put a, a, a guy who loves pranking constantly and a guy who hates pranks and is really serious in an apartment together like this, and we'd be at each other's throats, but <laughs> you're like a brother to me. Now imagine the camera lens slowly pulling back beyond the edges of the stage and slowly back enough to see that this whole house is behind a plate glass window. And on the other side of the plate glass window are teams of scientists muttering to one another, reviewing footage, wearing lab coats. The wrong bunch house and the host therein are scientific test subjects. And we pull back to see two scientists talking about what they've just seen. Ah, this just doesn't, the calculations don't add up. What are they doing? It doesn't match the models at all. We wanted to create a hilarious situation full of discord and whimsy, and, and instead we've created something heartwarming where people are, <sighs> I expected them to have a tape line down the center of the apartment by now, but instead they're sharing a touching moment about their differences? Absolutely, and that tape we designed to drive them apart drove them back together that, uh, this is all the sociologist's fault. They're the ones who didn't understand human behavior. Let's go to stage 262B and see if we can get the wrong PD officers with inherently contradictory characteristics to fight with each other. I'm just feeling so disillusioned about this whole project. Yeah, well, you win some, you lose some. One last thing before we wrap up the episode here is I just want to say that that little universe that we saw where scientists are observing the sitcom characters actually is an integrative narrative that includes all sitcoms that you've ever heard of. All of those sitcoms were set up by these scientists. And that didn't really fully come across on the scene, so I just wanted to emphasize that. And I just want to emphasize that we value sociologists and what they do, and everything in this episode was just lighthearted ribbing. Please, our sociologist friends, take heart, you're seen, you're valued, and you are loved here. Have a great week. We love you. <laughs>